me today. Um, we uh, worked a little bit together when you were uh, writing for MoneyLog.com, and I was at ACAMS, and I know, uh, I think I've run into you once or twice since then. It's been, it's been a while, but when I saw that you were working here, I said, well, this would be a great opportunity to both uh, talk about the organization, and that's the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, OCCDRP, and uh, get your take on, you know, some of the, from a high level, some of the things that your colleagues are working on it on, as as are you. I do know, uh, I've known Kevin Mall for a couple of decades. I knew Kevin when he would uh, cover the financial sector, and he he went off overseas for a number of years, and so we connected back. So he was kind enough to both uh, do a couple of interviews with me and uh, guest lecture one of my classes. I teach a uh, this is relevant to our conversation, a money laundering, corruption, and terrorism class at George Mason, a graduate class. And I'm able to bring in people like Kevin and others to talk to the students about this important area. So with that as a backdrop, tell us a bit about OCCRP. What, what's its mission and um, how, do, how does it work? I know there's a lot of different things in, they're involved in. There is. Thank you so much for having me. Um, let me see if I can make uh, make it Snappy, and I guess so. What we do, we do so much. Um, the way that OCCRP is organized really is uh, we have member centers all around the world. Um, mostly, we work in countries where media, independent media, especially investigative journalism, is under threat or non-existent. Um, in fact, in some places, and so our mission is to develop. Uh, investigative journalism, support investigative journalists in those countries, work with them, um, provide resources. This can be in the form of security or providing a publishing platform uh, if they can't publish in their own country under their own name. Uh, we provide a lot of trainings and um, we provide a lot of editorial resources as well. Sometimes uh, journalists come to us with an idea and we take it from the idea stage, develop it. Uh, you know, sometimes these investigations are very long, uh, they can take up the summer, summer years, <laughs> years long, depending on the complexity and the situation on the ground. Um, and uh, we take it all the way through, you know, to fact checking and publishing. So um, there's different levels of involvement depending on the location and depending on the story. Um, but that does basically what we do. And the idea is that journalists um, hold the power to account within their own countries. Um, so organized crime and corruption, they understand better than anyone what's happening there, what's important, um, who, you know, who the players are. And uh, it's, uh, we support them in doing this kind of work. So uh, describe your role. You're listed as an editor. Um, are you involved uh, through, throughout, uh, is it is it, again? Is it a typical editorial role in which you're you're fact checking your colleagues? T tell us a bit about your role here, because obviously it's an important aspect of getting that final product on the website or out in uh, various media uh, vehicles. Sure. So, um, just quickly, after um, I worked for Acamps for MoneyLaundering.com, um, I freelanced. Uh, for a number of years. And then when I took the job with OCCRP, I started as uh, a member of the core editing team. And those are editors who get the investigation in the end. 
Um, and then it goes through several levels of editing and fact checking, and they're the ones who prepare the package to go out into the world. Um, and then I transitioned into uh, the investigative editor role, which is what I do now. And I work more directly with the reporters from beginning of the investigation and carry it through, hand it off to the core editors who then do the editing and fact checking and the publishing. Um, so I've had several different roles um, and I work with uh, reporters in a lot of places in Kenya and Romania, um, for example, but my focus right now is uh, developing uh, investigations and reporters in Cyprus and Malta. Um, that's been my focus for the past year. Um, doesn't mean I don't do the occasional story outside of Cyprus and Malta once in a while. And of course, um, uh, most of our stories are cross-border. So, uh, you know, we have a story coming out um, soon. That's a collaboration between our Romanian member center and uh, Maltese journalists. So this is how organized crime works. And this is how we need to work because we say it takes a network to fight a network. And um, um, I know you wanted to ask me the, the, the role of investigative journalist. So I'll wait for that. I'll sure. Start. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll come back to that. I mean, the... Um... If people go to the website, they'll see a number of the projects. We interviewed some of your colleagues on the Russian Asset Tracker a bit ago, and obviously been involved in the Pandora Papers. People are well aware of that. What would you? What does the organization consider? This is a broad question. A success, and I'll premise it by saying, obviously, you're involved with some advocacy groups, uh, either directly or indirectly, and providing them with information so they can advocate. Uh, you know, a simple example would be if a, if a country does not have a strong beneficial ownership record-keeping reporting requirement, you guys shine a light on what happens when you don't have that information, and that could that could move policymakers to make adjustments. So, so it's like anything else when you quote lobby, you never know how you define success. But when you guys finish a, a story, you finish a project, and it goes out in the world, and people are reacting to it. What do you consider successful? The mere the mere fact that you show the light on the corruption uh, and the illegal acts and how it occurred, or is it more than that? Or I assume it depends, obviously, on a particular project. Um. Yes, this is a really interesting question. So we consider we consider something impact when there's consequences to something that we have reported on. Um. For example, the former. Uh, central banker of Lebanon um, was recently sanctioned. And this is, we want to say is the consequence of the investigation. It's hard to always say this is the right. consequence of our reporting right. because, right. you know, law enforcement or treasury officials, they don't say this is because of an OCCRP investigation. Right. However, you know, we, we sometimes see that something happens uh, as a result of our reporting and in fact, even see the language from our stories sometimes used in the justification of action, of the enforcement action. And so, yes, it's always good to see impact. Uh, it's, it's hard work, it's dangerous work. And, uh, you know, spending six months, 12 months on an investigation and nothing coming out of it, it, it can be depressing. So, yes, we do like to see impact. Um, you mentioned uh, working with advocacy organizations. Um, you know, really, we work with like uh, Transparency International. Uh, we partner with them. So we don't ourselves do lobbying unless 
it's something very related, uh, directly related to OTCRP's mission. Um, you know, like freedom of press, um, protection of journalists. Um, but uh, organizations that have the same mission to fight corruption, um, you know, it's uh, we do hope that they can multiply the the impact of our reporting uh, by advocating for certain issues, for example, yes, anti-corruption uh, missions. Um, you mentioned the beneficial owner's registry. Um, as your listeners probably know, there was a European court ruling um, to that, that, that basically made beneficial ownership registries in Europe inaccessible to journalists um, suddenly, overnight. And uh, this had a huge impact on our ability to report our stories and so, you know, yes, we we did get involved in um, advocating for it. We, for example, pulled together a bunch of the stories that were reliant on this kind of information and published a story basically saying these would not have been possible if we did not have access to beneficial ownership registries. Um, so, yes, when, when, when things directly impact our, our people, our mission, um, uh, you know, we... Uh, we get involved, uh, but mostly, you know, we try to stick to the journalism, to the facts, and what happens with it afterwards is um, is good. <laughs> if hopefully something does happen afterwards, but it's um, it's kind of out of our hands at that point. Sure, sure, that that, that makes sense. Uh, there's a number of uh, projects listed in investigative stories on your website, and uh, one that I looked at uh, a few days ago is. Um, members of the alleged Singapore money laundering syndicate bought London properties worth 56 million. I know you weren't involved in that, but this does go to the issue of both beneficial ownership information, but also purchasing real estate in cash, which is obviously still a problem in the U.S. and many other places. But before we went on uh, to have this conversation, you had mentioned a story from a couple of years ago of a coup in Gabon, I think it was. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about that because it's a similar similar issues it seems to me yeah um so in, uh, correct i wasn't involved in the story we just published um uh, this week uh about the singapore um gang but i can talk about the story we wrote a few years ago about the first family from gabon who we uh learned had properties in dc and so we reported on those and um understood that they purchased a number of properties in the DC area um, worth, I believe, four and a half million dollars to in total, and that was the sorry, four point two million US dollars, um, and that was the members of the first family, uh, the Bongo family, that's been ruling Gabon for decades, and have are are, are known to be um, to have wealth beyond their salaries. Sure, let's put it that way. Um, and also a uh, judge who kept, um, who was considered to have kept them in power. So she also had um, properties in DC. Um, and what we found is all those properties were purchased with cash. Um, and of course, the issue is evident to your listeners who understand that banks and other financial service providers um, have requirements, um, and hopefully they are doing their. Um, suspicious transaction reporting and asking questions and uh, doing their KYC. But if you're buying property in cash in Washington, D.C., uh, no one is required to ask questions and no one's required to report it. 
So what we found is that actually it's a really popular uh, destination for uh, for corrupt dictators. Um, we uh, reported a story on uh, Jame, who was the ruler of Gambia, um, having a uh, mansion in D.C. area. I'll call it a mansion. Um, it was about $3.5 million worth in the Potomac area. Um, and it was then seized after, um, after our investigation. Um, so, you know, these are, these are neighbors <laughs> in DC area. Um, it's, a, it's, it's interesting that we know, um, that it's such a big, um, I mean, and, and listen, we have New York and Miami and San Francisco and all these areas that we know are, um, people like to park their money in real estate. And, um, the fact that we don't require any kind of reporting or any kind of questions to be asked um, uh, for the source of uh, money, it's, you know, it's a problem. It's, it's where, it, it, it's where the stolen money from some of the poorest countries ends up. Yeah, there's no question about that. Um, let me shift gears a little bit. You know, let's talk about the importance of investigative journalism in general, but also uh, the danger. I think we all are very well aware, no matter where you sit, of the attacks on journalists, uh, attacks on the media, for both for political reasons and many other nefarious reasons. So it's it's not, a me, it's not an easy career path, I'm sure. Uh, but talk a little bit about why it's important, besides the obvious, because you are shining a light on uh, illegal activity when it's discovered, but also the dangers involved, because I think that's something that not enough people appreciate. You know, we went through a couple of uh, presidential elections here in the states where, when the media would show up, they'd be, you know, they'd be yelled at and threatened. But it's also happening around the world. And uh, we, you and I, talked offline before I got on that, um, and a Marquette alum, um, Jim Foley, was assassinated by. Be photojournalist by ISIS in 2014, uh, and there's there's a massive effort uh, based on that to to help those that have been kidnapped. So, um, just in general, how do your colleagues feel about this when they go on these investigations? And like you said, it can take six months, could take a year, could take a while. You know, what what's the thought process regarding danger? So, uh, my colleagues uh, face threats on several levels. The most obvious thing that we think about all the time when we're doing this work um, is actually being sued. Um, and we're very, very careful with the facts. Um, you know, we, we have many levels of editorial checks and fact checking, legal uh, scru scrutiny. Before we publish something, we are 100% sure that we got the facts right. Um, and yet, um, there are these things called slaps. Um, these are lawsuits designed to intimidate journalists, right? So, for example, a journalist could be sued for $2 million, uh, which is an absurd amount for a journalist, by the subject of an investigation or by somebody who was uh, mentioned in an investigation. They know they won't win on the facts, but uh, it's going to create a lot of uh, stress and a lot of uh, legal costs um, and basically distract journalists from from investigating uh, while they're dealing with this lawsuit. Obviously, some jurisdictions are more problematic than others, and this has been a big discussion. Um, in Europe, um, there's proposals on how to deal with anti-SLAP um, 
um, regulations, legislation. Um, but then there's always also the physical threat of doing this work, right? So when you're investigating organized crime and corruption, and so often they overlap, we're very aware that this is a very serious subject. And I believe the statistics show that this is probably the most dangerous, physically dangerous uh, beat to cover. Um, obviously, people have a lot to lose, power and money. Sure. And, um, you know, we really try to train uh, the reporters we work with um, to know what to look for um, in terms of being followed, um, being uh, surveilled, uh, because we know from experience that this is the kind of thing that take place before they are, um, before people are attacked. Um, before they're murdered. Um, so, you know, we do everything we can to create a situation to, to make sure that the reporters are prepared um, and could recognize the situation uh, where there's a danger or threat. And then we have certain procedures that we activate um, at that point, for example, removing the reporter from their home or from the country, um, depending on, you know, how long, uh, depending on the situation and depending on the th where the threat is coming from. Um, but it's never, it's always a risk sure. and it, it is really dangerous work for the people within their countries. I would say more so than me, I feel a little bit, um, you know, privileged with my American passport. Um, I have more protection than say a, a, a journalist in Kenya or a journalist in, in Romania. Um, but it's also really important work because, um, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, these, cross-border investigations is what is what ends up exposing these transnational criminal organizations, this transnational crime. We know money moves uh, in different jurisdictions for that reason, right? To confuse the investigators, to make it very difficult to follow the, follow the money. Um, and this is what we can do. We have this network we can tap into in a way that I think law enforcement does not, um, at least not as easily. Um, and that makes our work, I think, unique. Let me ask you, um, you you have a number of degrees. You got, As you said, you did some freelancing. You were at MyLawyer.com. You were at U.S. News & World Report. Uh, did you, what made you decide to be in the investigative journalist side? So was it a, was it a straight, straight line path? Or when you started doing reporting, you thought, this is, this is an additional area of, of reporting that I'd like to get involved in. So walk us through your, your career choices to where you've been here since 2019. So tell tell us a little bit about how you arrived at OCCRP. Uh, that's the hardest question. <laughs> okay. Let me uh, let me try to again make it more succinct. Um, I knew I loved doing investigative journalism. Why um, I I knew this because when I was in a grad school for journalism, um, my investigative journalism class was in. Uh, we were trying to identify who kidnapped and murdered uh, the Wall Street Journal reporter, Daniel Pearl, um, that most listeners will recognize. Um, and the the class was supposed to take a semester, but as these investigations do, it took three years for us to finish the investigation and to publish it. Those three years, I was completely obsessed with the story. Um, I you know, slept in the office at Georgetown so I could wake up in the middle of the night to call Pakistan for sources, uh, you know, to speak to sources. Um, 
I poured through documents. I, I replayed, um, you know, horrible, gruesome videos uh, on slow motion so I could identify details. So I just, I realized that, that, that this is the kind of work that doesn't feel like work to me. Um, it feels like I'm solving a mystery. <laughs> and so it was really interesting. When I went to work for U.S. News and World Report, it was an uh, incredible experience working uh, reporting on poli- politics and policy. Um, but it did, you know, it, it, it was weekly, weekly stories on whatever was happening in the world. Um, and not so much digging into something, sinking your teeth into something. Um, then when I went to work for moneylaundering.com, I really appreciated that experience because it was so much more in the weeds, right? It's, it's, uh, it's incremental. It's, you have to really understand what's important to your audience in order to give them a story that that matters and the stories that matter to that audience were like tiny little incremental changes things that were coming down the pipeline um scoops they were scoops and um they were really fun and i got to uh make some really great sources and learn a lot about uh, anti-money laundering uh of course that got me interested in what i'm doing now uh which is investigating basically you know money laundering financial crime corruption yeah uh i'll get you out of here on this i really appreciate you taking the time i also want to mention uh that occrp was nominated for a nobel peace prize in 2023 and a lot of the great information available on their website uh but given the fact that you are involved in detecting reporting and overseeing stories about corruption are you optimistic do you feel that not about the organization, but just in general, because obviously we're we're all dealing with it's a dark time, and you know, around the world. Uh, give us a sense: uh, it, is there optimism that we can get it, get some of this right? Transparency International, by the way, we've interviewed those folks a number of times. Global Financial Integrity, they obviously are pushing really hard to make change, and when you talk to them, they seem optimistic. Not that they're going to be super successful, but that. What they're doing is going to make some at least changes around the margins. How do you feel uh, as an investigative journalist? Uh, there's so much out there that you're shining a light on, but are you optimistic that we can that we can improve things? Um, I speak personally. I am optimistic because I think our stories elevate uh, these issues into the mainstream and with people's consciousness. Right, whereas um, I think maybe. 10 years ago, uh, there wasn't really a conversation about, say, wildlife trafficking, uh, right. you know, being a, an issue of organized crime. Um, it became an issue that people are aware of and a conversation and conversations lead to hopefully policy change and things like that. Um, so corruption, not a new subject for people to understand. But I think um, the things that we shed a light on, as um, as I think you you put it, um, I think it's important to keep doing that uh, and keep uh, bringing the conversation to the mainstream, to the forefront, because if we don't, then it becomes just accepted and there's cynicism, there's a levels. And some of the countries I work in, um, some of the countries where the reporters I work with are, um, this is a real issue where people Clearly not the reporters, otherwise they wouldn't be risking their lives to do this. But much of the population is just cynical about everyone being corrupt and there never being uh, progress. And it's just always going to be this way. 
But even in those countries, I've seen, I mean, yes, it, there's, you know, ups and downs, but I've seen, um, I've seen progress um, in terms of what's, a, you know, what, what, what the electorate does not find acceptable anymore. And really, that's our, that's really our work, right? To, to bring the facts to the readers, to the people going to the voting booths, and the, for those people to decide, am I going to reelect re this government? Am I going to vote for this person that, right. you know, owns properties in London worth 10 million, 20 million, 60 million <laughs> in one case, um, and bought with cash? Um, so really, this is, yeah, I, I, I think I have to stay optimistic in order to keep doing this because it's hard. Akira, I really appreciate both your time and your insight and what the organization is doing. I would urge folks uh, to go on their website. They do take donations as well. And uh, this is uh, an area that is uh, definitely needs support from the general public because without the sunshine, you know, there'll be no be no change. But I appreciate ending on a positive note. Uh, we're going to continue uh, in our conversations to talk to people like yourself. But thank you. Thank you so much for your time today. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, John. And in addition to donations, we also take uh, tips. <laughs> from sources what? on our web on our website there is a way to uh, send us information anonymously and uh, we will always look at it thank you okay